Turn with me to um, uh, Isaiah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab uh, uh, one of these blue Bibles in the pew. You can find that on page uh, 330, I believe. If I'm wrong, someone yell out the right page and we'll go with that. All right. Uh, As soon as Jeremiah asked me to preach, I go, I'm going to preach Isaiah 6. And he goes, that'll be great. I think I've heard that sermon about seven times. And I was thinking, man, I hope it takes this time. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, right? If I've preached it seven times and where Jeremiah has heard it, then I have preached it a million times to myself because this is one of the texts in my most discouraging days of ministry when I feel like there's no one's coming to the gospel. No one's responding to the gospel. I come back to this text to fuel my heart for missions, for evangelism. And and so my hope and my prayer is that as we study this text this morning, that your heart will be so captivated by what a glorious Savior we have in Jesus Christ that um, you will come back to this text over and over and over and over again to fuel your passion for making him known in your neighborhood, in your city, and even the world. And so um, this morning, I'm not going to so much talk about the methods of evangelism, because I think Pastor Jeremiah has probably equipped and trained you well in the methods of evangelism. And I think probably as a church, we have lots of skills on evangelism. What I really want to do is just talk about your motivation for not the methods, but the motivation for evangelism. And so um, the, uh, the, the motivation for sharing the gospel with your family and your friends and your neighbors and coworkers, that's what I want to get at this morning. So can I get right to your heart? Can I just go right to your heart and maybe just expose your heart and lay your heart bare this morning for a moment? Uh, let me do that by asking a simple question. When was the last time you have shared the gospel with someone. When's the last time? Or do you share the gospel with someone weekly? Now, immediately, I know what's happening in the room. Like, immediately in your hearts and minds, there are going to be two different responses. The first response is self-condemnation. You're like, oh, no, I'm a horrible Christian. I haven't shared the gospel in, I can't remember when, you know? And, uh, you, and so your heart immediately begins to be filled with condemnation. You're like, to be honest, I, I don't even know if I like my neighbor, right? And I mean, his dog poops in my yard, and that annoys me, you know? I'm not confessing anything. I'm just saying there at one time we had a neighbor. He had this little dog that yapped. Like, it didn't even bark. It just yapped. Like, if your dog yaps, just leave him inside with the cats, Right? You know, that's not even a real dog. All right, don't email. Oh, you can email me. Email me at jeremiah.5x. <laughs> I thought about buying a cat to scare this dog off my lawn. You know, that's what a, kind of a pansy little but No, like if I was a good Christian, I would love him and his dog and share the gospel with him, right? And so my heart immediately begins to be filled with condemnation. Or maybe the other response is self-righteousness. You might go, yeah, I leave tracks everywhere I go right? Uh, If you're going to leave a track at a restaurant uh, with your tip, you make sure you tip 50%, all right? Don't throw in a 20% tip with a a track. And I'm not against tracks, but I think sometimes we can just go, hey, I'm doing my duty. You know, I'm a good Christian. I'm leaving tracks everywhere. The, um, 
Here's what I want you to hear. Both self-condemnation and self-righteousness are both anti-gospel and work in contradiction to the gospel. Self-righteousness seeks to justify ourselves in evangelism. And self-condemnation is motivated out of fear that God won't accept me because I'm not a good Christian sharing the gospel with everybody. Both of those will rob you of the true power of the gospel. And so the question is, is there a greater motivation? And if so, how can I experience it in my daily life? Well, let me just say this right up front. Here is the greatest motivation for evangelism. It is getting a glimpse of the height of God's holiness and the depth of our sinfulness in such a way that the cross of Christ looms larger and larger in your life so that it, you begin to reorient every moment of your life in response to the cross. I was telling the group yesterday I was speaking with, that here's, here's what I want to give the rest of my life to. I want to give the rest of my life to uh, helping people become so captivated by who Christ is and what he did for them on the cross that they would reorient their lives towards him and his mission. And I use the word captivate on purpose because I, I looked it up in the dictionary and, it's, and the, the word captivate means to be held by the beauty and the excellency of. And so he, he, here's my task. As a weak, frail preacher, my task this morning is to lift up Jesus Christ in such a way that you would be captivated by him in greater and greater ways that you would be held by the beauty and the excellency of who Jesus Christ is. And so to do that, I want to go to this great text in um, Isaiah chapter 6. Look look with me at verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I just want to stop right here because I think context is important. King Uzziah reigned for 52 years as the king of Judah. You'll know how many presidents we've had in the last 52 years? 11. And like, we freak out every time there's a turnover in, in, in uh, the office of presidents. But for, for uh, Isaiah and the people of Judah, they're like all they've ever known. I mean, Isaiah was probably a young man when he was having this vision. All he has ever known is King Uzziah ruling over Judah. And now all of a sudden he's dead and it feels like their worlds have been turned upside down. Like kings and rulers and dictators and presidents, they all rise and fall, but not God. He never had a beginning and therefore depends on nothing for existence. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, uh, I mentioned that I have three daughters and... um, when they were young, they'd be driving around in the car with us, and they're all extroverts. They're more like their mom than me. I'm an introvert, right? And I know that sounds weird for a pastor, but that's me. And so, um, and so we're riding in the car with them, and they're all talking at the same time. It's like surround sound conversation with these girls in the car. And all of a sudden, my middle one out of nowhere goes, Dad, who created God? And I was like, great question, honey. And um, I said, nobody created God. He is the creator of all things. Everything that is created has come from him and to him and through him. Like he is the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. 
in pure silence in the backseat of my car. And I don't know how it was in your home, but as long as there was noise in the house, I was fine. As soon as things got quiet, I got worried, right? Something was up. And so I'm looking in the rearview mirror, trying to watch my daughters comprehend the bigness of God, a God who has always existed and always will exist. And after a few seconds of silence, my middle daughter breaks the silence going, Dad, that blows my mind. And I'm like, honey, that's the point. That's the point. I pray that this morning as we look at this text, that we would see in this text a God that's bigger than anything you imagined. A God that's so big that it blows your mind. Like you're sitting here this morning just going, wow, 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 wow. I remember an old lady came up to me one time and said, I, I don't know about heaven. Like, I, I think I might get bored in heaven. I mean, is it going to be a never-ending praise chorus, right? Like the song that never ends, you know? I was like, man, heaven is going to be so much greater than that. Because we will spend all of eternity plunging the depth and the riches and the beauty of the gospel revealed to us, all of who God is revealed to us in the face of Christ. And a million years will pass and it'll be like the first day that we stood face to face before God in all of his glory going, wow, 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 wow. Now, if that's true of heaven, why not begin now practicing for all of eternity? Begin now worshiping this incredible, glorious God that we serve. Begin now just plunging the depth and the riches of the gospel revealed to us in Scripture to the degree that your mind is blown by the bigness and the holiness of God. This picture we always get of God in heaven is him sitting upon his throne as the sovereign, authoritative ruler of the universe. He is the uncontested ruler of the cosmos. His throne is far above every other throne. Like, we can be freaking out about the next election cycles, but don't. Because above the Oval Office is a much greater throne, and it, 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 it matters, but not to the degree that there's a greater throne than the Oval Office. It's a throne upon which God sits. When earthly superpowers rise and fall, there will be one divine superpower who will reign supremely and eternally. The throne is his right to rule over the world. We don't give God authority over our lives. He has it whether we like it or not. And what other foolishness it is to live our lives as if God is not on his throne and not in other and complete control of this infinite universe in which we live in, as well as every single molecule within your body. For some of you, as you try to comprehend a God that big, you should rest. You should rest. This is a God of the universe who sits on his throne, holds you, as Isaiah says later on, in the very hollow of his hand. He holds the expanse of the universe in the hollow of his hand. Do you think he cannot hold you? Now, Look what happens next as we have this big view of God. In verse 2, it says, And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. 
With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to one another, calling, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I mean, this had to be one rocking concert, right? Some of you think the music is too loud on Sunday morning. Wait until you get to heaven, right? Here's what a seraphim am. A seraphim simply means fiery one. I grew up actually here in Bavard County in Rockledge, Merritt Island. And I'll never forget as a child, my dad took me to watch the Blue Angels at Patrick Air Force Base. And I'll never forget sitting out there and watching them just zoom almost. It felt like at eye level across the runway in front of us. And you could hear, you could see the, the, the jet engines, the roar of the jet engines. You could feel it in your chest as it rumbled by you. Now, when we're thinking of seraphims, I want you to think more of blue angels than chubby babies with wings, all right? That's what the seraphims here are. And each of these seraphims had six wings. And so imagine this, with six wings, one set they would fly around on. On another set, they would cover their feet, presumably because they knew they were in the presence of a holy God. And then with the third pair, they would cover their faces because they were in the presence of a God so great and so glorious and so holy they couldn't even bear to look upon them. Now, seraphims, these angels, would be beings that would bring fear into the hearts of men who encountered them. But before a holy and great God, it was these seraphims that would cover their faces because God's holy is that great. Now, Isaiah doesn't tell us the number of seraphims on the throne room of heaven, but Revelations 5.11 tells us that the number of angels surrounding the throne room of God is numbering of the myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. And they're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The very foundation, it wasn't just the foundations, it was the thresholds of the foundations that were shaking. The place you run to, we, uh, we don't have earthquakes in uh, Florida, but if you have a, a hurricane or a tornado, you go to the strongest point of the house, which is usually the thresholds of the door frames. And even they were shaking under the echo of myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy. Now, The glory of God is the manifestation of his holiness. God's holiness is the incomparable perfection of his divine nature. His glory displays that holiness. One of my seminary professors, great theologian R.C. Sproul, writes this. He goes, God is glorious. That means God's holiness has gone public. His glory is a full display of his infinite holiness. And so these majestic fiery beings in the midst of God's holiness on on full display can only call out, holy, holy, holy. Now, I want you to get this. I want you to see this this morning. This threefold ascription to God's holiness isn't just one plus one plus one, but it means perfection times perfection times perfection. 
Now, I'll let you do the math for a moment. But I don't know about you, I was never really good at math, but that kind of math just blows my mind. Look with me at verse 5. Isaiah's only rightful response to the revelation of the holiness of God on full display is to say, woe is me, for I am lost, and I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst amidst the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, the only response to the holiness of God is to mourn our sin. Now, most of us are good at minimalizing our sin instead of mourning our sin. But in light of the holiness of God, you can never minimize your sin. Your only response is to mourn your sin. That's why Isaiah says, woe is me. For those of you who are old school, railing with the KJV, it says, I am undone. I'm undone. Or the NIV says, I am ruined. I am ruined. Now, in order to understand what Isaiah is saying, we must have a biblical understanding of what the word woe means. It's lost its meaning in our day and time. But in biblical times, when, author, when a prophet would utter the word woe against an individual or a city or a nation, it meant certain doom, like no hope. And so when Isaiah uses the word woe, he's pronouncing God's judgment against him. He's saying, I'm worthy of death. I'm worthy of being destroyed. And so why was this his response? It wasn't simply because he had a dirty mouth. It went far deeper to his mouth. The problem was rooted deeply in his heart. He realized that he was a sinner living among sinners, and this caused him to tremble and become undone. And so let me just stop for one second here this morning and ask the question, have you ever been undone? by your sin. Have you ever been undone by your sin? Remember the earthquake in Haiti that happened in 2010? Over 220,000 of our Haitian brothers and sisters' life ended in just one day. I remember uh, I had experienced in the days unfolding that tragedy that would shape me in a powerful way. I was living in Orlando, and I was upstairs in my study on a Saturday night preparing, doing some last-minute preparation for Sunday morning, the next morning, and um, I was plowing away, but I had the TV on in my office that was giving coverage to just this unfolding disaster that was happening uh, just an hour and a half flight from us. And I was busy doing preparation, and my youngest daughter, who, who was 11 or 12 at the time, very young, so tender-hearted, she came into the office unnoticed. And if I'd known she'd come in, I'd probably turn the TV off because the coverage was so heart-wrenching and so graphic. And the only reason I knew she was in there is I just heard her begin to weep. I mean, she just began to weep uncontrollably. And I spun around on my desk and saw her, went over to the couch and scooped her up and held her in my arms. And she goes, Dad, why does God let something like this happen? Why does something so devastating happen? 
And I responded to her and saying, the earthquake, like every other natural disaster, reminds us that creation groans under the weight of sin and judgment under God. And she began to cry even harder. And she goes, Daddy, I hate sin. I hate sin. And as I sat there and I held her, I thought to myself, oh, I wish I hated sin as much as she did. Oh, I wish I would weep over my sin and the sin that we see all around us. Have you ever been undone by your sin? One of the reasons we're not compelled to live out the mission of God is we truly don't hate sin. We don't weep of its destructiveness in our lives and the lives of those around us. We've never truly been undone by sin. Yesterday, uh, afternoon, we got message that one of our former staff members who had battled addiction, alcohol addiction, had a relapse and died just like that, a young man. I remember saying to my, talking to my wife about it, and she's like, I hate sin. I hate sin. I hate its devastating effect on people's lives that we love and care for. Pastor and author Kent Hughes writes in his commentary, he says, there's two great tragedies that are possible in every human soul. The first one is this. The first tragedy is of never trembling, of never coming to face one's sin before a holy God. And the second is the tragedy of disregarding such spirit-producing trembling. The one whom God has brought to fear for his own soul must not turn away. And so have you been undone by your sin? If you're here this morning and you've never been undone with your sin, You've never had a glimpse of the height of God's holiness and the depth of your own sinfulness in such a way that uh, the cross of Christ looms large, that Jesus Christ as your Savior has not seemed glorious. Then I plead with you, respond. You are here because the Spirit is drawing you to himself. Surrender to the one who is on the throne that's above all thrones. Surrender to the one who is the uncontested ruler of the cosmos. Surrender to you, to your life, to the one who will hold you securely in his hands, regardless of superpowers rise and fall. He will always hold you in his hands. Now, something powerfully amazing happened to Isaiah as he mourned his sin. Look with me at verse six and seven. It says, "The one of the seraphims flew to me, and having his hand." having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. I mean, think about that for a moment. A fiery being taking a coal so hot that he has to use tongs and he places it upon Isaiah's lip. Verse 7, he says, He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. That is the greatest message the world has ever known. Do you know that for yourself? Do you know that, that your guilt has been taken away? That your sin has been paid for? What glorious news. The purifying grace of God not only seared Isaiah's lid, but it burned deeply into his heart. Isaiah experienced this deep, deep mourning of his sin, but experienced the great gospel, the comfort of the gospel. I mean, that's the second beatitude in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Bless those, those 
who are poor in spirit, those who see their spiritual poverty, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The threshold in entering into the kingdom of heaven is seeing your spiritual poverty. And then the second beatitude is that you mourn it, and yet the blessings of mourning your sin is that you get to experience the gospel of uh, the comfort of the gospel. Uh, Jack Miller, a pastor and preacher that had a huge influence. I never had the chance to meet him, but he influenced a lot of my mentors. He would always go around telling people, cheer up. You're more sinful than you ever dared imagined. But you are far more loved than you ever dared hope. That's the comfort of the gospel. That's what Isaiah is experiencing. I think the question that we, are, we need to wrestle with this morning is, How can I get a vision like Isaiah? The answer is simple. Look to the cross. Live in full view of the cross. Author and pastor Jerry Bridges writes in his book, The Gospel for Real Life, which I highly recommend. He writes this. The cross then is an expression of God's wrath towards sin as well as his love for us. It expresses his holiness and his determination to punish sin even at the cost of his son and expresses his love in sending his son to bear the punishment we so justly deserved. So in answer to the question, why the cross? We must say God's holiness demanded it to save us from our sins. We cannot begin to understand the true significance of the cross unless we understand something about the holiness of God and the depth of our sin. And it is a continuing sense of the imperfection of our obedience arising from the constant presence and remaining power of indwelling sin that drives us more and more as believers to an absolute dependence on the grace of God given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Ah, what beautiful words Bridges brings to bear. What incredible comforts for sinners like you and me. As we consider the work of Christ for us, we need to keep in mind that our sin necessitated it. For it is only against the backdrop of our sinfulness that we can see the glory of the Christ's cross shining forth in all of its brilliance and splendor. And as we gaze upon the cross, we will also discover that Christ in his great work for us not only resolved our sin problem, but secured for us the unsearchable riches of the gospel in Christ Jesus Christ. God is gracious to us in a sense that he doesn't utter, doesn't, uh, he does not utterly expose the depth of our sinfulness to us all at once, like he did with Isaiah. I think that would be devastating. I mean, it's hard enough having three daughters. You know, the, the most sanctifying thing in the world is uh, parenting, because your children always reflect your sin back to you. Like my wife would go, that's your daughter. You know what she meant by that? Like, that's your sin she's doing, right? And it's like, it's like, man, I get it in small doses. Isaiah got it all at once. But he exposes that to us day by day as we press into the gospel and grow in the awareness of God's holiness and the depth of our sinfulness. And the result is that a glorious Savior comes shining through. Yeah, we are great sinners, but here's the good news of the gospel. We have a far greater Savior. And that is our hope upon hope. 
I never tire of the words in the great hymn, Amazing Grace by John Noon. It says, you know it well, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And then the next verse says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and twas grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. You know that the line that has so shaped my heart in that beautiful hymn is, "'Twas grace.'" We don't always think of it in this way, right? But "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear.'" And grace, my fear is relieved. It's a work of grace that shows you how sinful you are, but it's a work of grace that relieves you because you have such a glorious Savior. Now, it is God's amazing grace that simultaneously teaches our hearts to fear the holiness and the wrath of God, but it's the same grace that relieves our fears. I think the most transforming discipline you can develop in your Christian walk is to Learn to preach the gospel to yourself. In order for us to live in full view of the cross, we must allow the truth of the gospel to define every moment of our lives. The decisions we make, the way we relate to people around us. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote this. I love this. He goes, most necessarily it is therefore that we should know this article well, speaking of the gospel, and we need to teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. I love the pastoral way he just says that, like just beat it into their heads. That's Pastor Jeremiah's job every single Sunday, right? He gets to get up here and beat this amazing grace into your hearts and minds to the degree that you will believe it, that it will shape every decision you make in every moment of your life. Carl Truman is the professor of historical theology and church history at Westminster Theological Seminary. In his article, I would Google this, and save it. It's an article entitled, Thank God for Bandit Country. Carl explains how Luther, Martin Luther, preached the gospel to himself. Carl writes, I have learned much from the master theologian, churchman, public figure, and normal Christian believer. That's what I always think of when I think of Martin Luther. Um, It's well known that in his writings and in table conversations, Luther would often refer to visits from the devil and how the devil would come to him and whisper in his ear, accusing him of all manners of filthy sin. Martin, you are a liar, greedy, lecherous, a blasphemer, and a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God, to which Luther would respond. Well, yes, I am. And indeed, Satan, you do not know the half of it. I have done much worse than that. And if you care to give me your full list, I can no doubt add to it and help, me help you make it more complete. But you know what, Martin says? He goes, my Savior has died for all my sins. Those you have mentioned, those I could add, and indeed those that I have committed, but I'm so wicked that I'm unaware of. It, is, it does not change the fact that Christ has died for all of them. His blood is sufficient. And on the day of judgment, I shall be exonerated because he has taken all of my sins on himself and clothed me in his own perfect righteousness. My Savior knows the full depth of my sleaziness, my sin, and my moral insanity. 
and covered by his blood all these crimes you allege against me. Indeed, he has covered many more and much worse. And your reminders of my sinfulness and my need need of him are most gratefully received. You don't know how you fight Satan? With the truth of the gospel. This amazing grace that both convicts us of our sin and brokenness and comforts us with his love and forgiveness. How precious, how beautiful is this grace. Be transformed by it. Always live in it. And as you grow in grace, may your love and devotion for Christ burn ever brighter as the hour in which you first believed. Right? Now, to answer the question, how do I get a vision like Isaiah? It's simply to look to the cross and no further. A gospel awakening means seeing more of God's holiness and more of my sin. And because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, we need not fear seeing God as he really is in all of his holiness going public or even admitting how broken we are. We, we have the comfort of the gospel. And so grace becomes our motivation for mission. It is that joy when we are captivated with the beauty and the depth and the riches of the gospel where we, like Isaiah, can say, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. This is where I want us to be. This is where I want to be, right? Now, in almost all my years of hearing this text preached, most preachers, not all, but most would stop here in the sermon, Isaiah prayer and saying, here am I, send me. And honestly, I don't blame pastors for stopping right here. Because once you get past here, something really uncomfortable happens in this text. It says, look at it with me in verse 9. He said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Like when the gospel is preached, the human heart is never left unchanged. It either becomes repentant or resistant. It either becomes closer or further, softer or harder, but it never remains the same. Jonathan Edwards, he goes, powerful preaching, if it doesn't awaken, it hardens more than any other preacher. And this is Isaiah's calling. His calling is he's going to go to a people, he's going to preach to them, and there's not going to be a revival. Like they're just going to harden their hearts. I mean, imagine planting a church and plowing hard, preaching your heart out, and no one comes to your church. Or if you spend year after year investing in your neighbors, lovingly demonstrating and declaring the gospel to them, and nobody responds. If you are motivated by self-righteousness or self-condemnation, you will self-destruct. You'll self-destruct. So the question then becomes, what is my motivation if I see absolutely no fruit, what's the point? I'll never forget when we were in Orlando, we met a friend of ours. She was a doctor. Her husband had left her, and we met her because her kids were our kids' age at the time, and they were come playing at our house, and they were playing at our house a lot. We were like, we don't even know your mom, and you're playing in our house. And they're like, oh, well, my mom has breast cancer. She just had a double mastectomy. And so that's how we got to meet our neighbor. And we began to invest in her, love on her kids. 
And we vacationed with her. We shared the gospel with her over and over and over again. And she never responded. And I'll never forget driving to our neighborhood one day. My wife goes, man, we've done everything. Like we vacationed with her and her kids. We've shared the gospel. We've loved her in sacrificial ways that she's not responded to the gospel. Is she just not part of the elect? Should we just give up? And I remember just sharing in that discouragement with, our wife, with my wife and then going, no, no, we'll never give up because the motivation for why we declare the goodness and grace and glory of our Savior is not simply for conversions. We want conversions, but there's a deeper motivation than that. It's that we get the seeing of God's goodness, grace, and glory. The motivation for missions, for evangelism, comes the glory of God. Fueled by God's grace, the end goal is God's glory. It's that we get to join in with the seraphims and the angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of our, his glory. And we get to be a part of that of filling our little dark corner of the world with the light of the glory of God. That is the motivation for evangelism. It is to declare what already is and what will be, that the whole earth will be full of his glory. Man, that infuses such deep meaning and purpose into our lives, right? That we get to join in with the seraphims and declaring the holiness of God. The hope that Isaiah has and the hope that we have rests solely on this holy seed that Isaiah speaks of in verse 13, the one for whom we will sing a new song. A song that goes like this in Revelations 5, 9 and 10. It says, worthy are you who take the scroll and open its seals for you are slain in your blood and by your blood you ransomed me. He ransomed you. He ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's the end of that song that Isaiah sees in Isaiah 6. In Revelation 10, it says that there will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation there because God has used broken vessels like you and me to sing of his goodness and grace and glory. Oh, let that be our motivation. May that be our song. May this be our mission. Paul, let me close with this. Paul in Galatians 6.14 gives us a fascinating glimpse into how his faith in the gospel transformed him. I mean, this was a guy who in his mission in life, I mean, you think it's rough. Like, uh, I love to speak of how challenging it is in our cultural context to bring the gospel like, Paul was in a pre-Christian context. We're in a post-Christian context. And he suffered way more than any of us will ever suffer for the gospel. Went prison, beaten, snake-bitten. Incredibly rough life, but what drove him? He goes this in Galatians 6.14, he says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Pastor and author John Stott writes this. He goes, in his commentary in Galatia, he goes, Paul's whole world was in orbit around the cross. But let me just say that again. Paul's whole world was in orbit around the cross. 
It filled his vision, illumined his life, warmed his spirit. He gloried in it. It meant more to him than anything else. The Greek word translated here as boast has no exact English equivalent. It means to glory and trust and revel and live for. In a word, God's glory was his obsession. And so this is what it means to live in full view of the cross. This is why Cross Point exists. That's the whole point of the name of this church, right? Is that we would live in full view of the cross. And so my prayer for you and for Cross Point Coast is that you would be so captivated. First, by who Jesus is. And then what he accomplished for you on the cross. That you would begin to reorient your whole life towards him and his mission fueled by a desire to bring his glory to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are about ready to enter into communion. And the fact that the uncontested ruler of the cosmos would send his son to enter into the messiness of our lives to redeem us, That's mind-blowing. That's heart-transforming. Oh, may that grace fall upon us anew and afresh this morning. As we come to the table, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts to have a bigger view of you that will compel us to be captivated by you and live on mission with you. May it be so. Amen. Amen.